Welcome to Coffee with Connections, powered by Centurion Wealth Management. I'm your host, Cooper Zimmerman, the Director of Communications here at Centurion. We're a fiduciary financial planning firm based out of McLean, Virginia. In this podcast, well, this is an exploration of ideas, insights from high-performance professionals, and commentary on all things investing, business, and entrepreneurship. But it's important to remember that this podcast is not investment advice. This series is purely educational and for entertainment purposes only. We encourage you to consult a professional before making any financial decisions. Now, let's get to this week's interview. What's up, Coffee with Connection fans? Cooper Zimmerman here, the Director of Communications for Centurion Wealth Management on another episode of Coffee with Connections. And I actually wanted to start something a little bit new this episode. I wanted to start uh, providing my input, insights, reflection at the front of these and really kind of take my time to help you guys understand what it is exactly that I'm trying to do with these interviews and really just get that inside look at my interaction with these high performance professionals and my takeaways that I learned from these folks. So this week's podcast is with Michael Eckstein. Okay, Michael Eckstein is the owner operator of something called Resting Business Face. You might be thinking, hmm, well, that's a quirky name. Like, what could that be? Well, Michael's an accountant, right? That's the easiest way to put it. Michael is a trained accountant, a licensed accountant, understands the nuances of tax in America, right? So we talk about that, of course. Uh, But we also talk about cash flow, entrepreneurship, small business, and in and around the world of digital media marketing. Because, uh, as you could tell, a a name like Resting Business Face, Michael is someone who's not afraid to take a different approach. And this is something that he'll say that he's evolved into and we talk about. But his approach to communication, marketing and branding and, you know, new client acquisition is to truly just be an authentic communicator. Right. I I actually found out uh, from him on LinkedIn. I discovered him on LinkedIn. I just got connected with him. And all of a sudden I started seeing these posts and it was delivered in a way that was casual, friendly, a little bit funny. But it was talking about very serious issues of invoicing and tax and various small business uh, subjects. So I thought it was a unique delivery and it works because his posts on LinkedIn will get hundreds of likes and comments and engagement from other professionals. So the guy clearly knows his stuff professionally, but he's communicating it in an innovative way and something that I think the industry is moving towards, right? I think the nature of this very podcast, right? The fact that you're listening to a financial planning podcast, me, the director of communications for a financial planning firm, but I'm talking in a way that I would just probably talk to you uh, at a golf outing or at a networking event. And it's not this buttoned up, overly corporate approach to business uh, people find that appealing because it's how they live their life, right? It makes sense. Like we shouldn't go into the professional world and just become these corporate robots uh, because everyone is tense in that environment and people don't truly express themselves maybe the way they uh, are reflective of their true feelings and ideas. So Michael cuts through all of that by delivering content uh, to talk about the issues that he worked with his clients on in a very approachable manner. So we get into all of that. We bounce around uh, some hypothetical, my uh, hypothetical scenarios of what I think uh, wealth management or more so retirement is evolving into, what that's going to look like in 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. We talk about possibly, you know, what the IRS does, what they don't do. Do they actually just enforce it? He kind of breaks it down and help us understand um, that subject as well as you know the fear of oh what if the irs changes you know roth ira tax provisions what happens then right he kind of brings a professional opinion to it so this is a fun episode right uh michael was a joy to talk to uh i love talking about this subject if you've listened to the podcast before you know i tend to gravitate towards uh entrepreneurship small business marketing angle uh but michael is a great guy awesome professional knows his stuff and we had a phenomenal conversation so i hope you stick around and enjoy this whole episode of Coffee with Connections with Michael Eckstein right now. Michael, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. Nothing much is going on. Well, look, man, we we actually, it's funny because I'm going to kind of start with LinkedIn social media because you and I 
the only way we would have been on this Zoom together here this morning on this Tuesday morning is through social media and through LinkedIn mm-hmm. and me consuming your content for months, enjoying it, finding value in it, liking <laughs> it, learning from it. Um, and then just saying, hey, like you want to come on my firm's podcast and, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we've kind of got to know each other a little bit. Um, and I would say it's in, we were in the same industry, if you want to clump it in just financial services, right? Yeah. Our industry is notoriously old guard, maybe a little stale, if you will. Your approach, Definitely. your approach is kind of a rebuttal to that, right? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, your business's name is resting business face. Yeah. Is, <laughs> that's the actual name, right? Yeah. How did that, I felt, how did that come I about? Felt very clever when I thought of that, by the way. Yeah. It, well, it is because I, but you, I, I was telling you earlier, you, you strike a perfect blend, I think, of of highly educated and informed, mm-hmm. but extremely approachable. So I say all that to say, walk me through kind of how, how did you get to this journey of being the owner operator of your own business? And then what gave you the confidence to kind of take that pretty like authentic approach to it and do it the way that's, you know, maybe truly portraying who you are? Yeah. So I guess all that said, I did start out a little bit more boring. I don't think I was ever super boring because I don't have like the big firm pedigree where they kind of like, you know, build it into you. Sure. But like way back, I think my firm was originally called Michael Eckstein Tax Services, which is like very understandable, but also like incredibly boring. The email, like my uh, emails to clients were like, it was like way back. I was like, hello, Mr. So-and-so. Um, I don't think I've used hello or dear or anything in email like years at this point. Now it's all like, hey, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was like an evolution for me. I didn't start super fun because like you're saying, like our industries tend to be boring. And I thought it was kind of like how you had to be, mm-hmm. you know, like I didn't know better. I thought right. it was just like, I'm an accountant. This is what's expected out of all of us. And then as time kind of went on, it, it evolved to be more casual. And I think there are like a few like turning points, inflection points, whatever you want to call it, where like there was major shifts. The first was, I do not remember what book this quote is from, by the way, but the only thing I remember out of this entire book, I don't even remember the name of the book, was pretty much just one point that they were making that people don't necessarily care about you. They care about how you can help them, right? And if you can help them and you can solve their problems or whatever, they don't care if you're super duper professional, mm-hmm. right? And then as time went on, I kind of realized that some people actually like it when you're less than super professional because it does make like our industries difficult to, I guess, approach, you know, because we've all seen like the super serious, like for example, lawyer or something, right. but then like clients feel awkward or uncomfortable talking to them. So they don't bring all their questions to them and they Google something And then now they have a problem and our industries are all kind of caught up in this super duper professionalism, but that approachability is what people want. Do you think COVID maybe was just exacerbated or accelerated? Maybe is the better word, like maybe where we were already headed. Like I think advisors and like, I'm, you know, financial advisor, you're more obviously in the kind of the accountant side, but like I was, we were already as a firm and as an individual, as a practitioner, you know, using social media, running zoom meetings but it wasn't mm-hmm. like it wasn't the core focus it was kind of you know if it was yep. 80 80 was in person still you know suit and tie come to the office sit down like let's look at this and then COVID happens and it's like wait a second this is all we have i think <laughs> yep. it almost like i think it just accelerated that comfortability with probably a little bit more informal stuff and that's not mm-hmm. to say it's any less serious or any like if my accountant or my advisor is wearing like you know a, like a, like i'm wearing a golf polo like do i think he knows any less than he does when he's wearing like a armani suit like no it's still whoever that person is but like did you kind of see COVID as an opportunity to truly lean into that persona or not persona if you will but like that element of digital marketing authenticity i think covid definitely accelerated the industry's transition from like being paper-based to being virtual-based right like holistically not just from a marketing perspective because like beforehand like you're saying 80 percent of my meetings were in person i wasn't really doing zooms unless they weren't literally you know, within a few miles of my office, but like, because of COVID and we all had to swap so fast, we all kind of went from like 80% in person. Now 
I don't even do in-person appointments. And like mm-hmm. everyone's cool with it because they had to be and everyone just kind of got used to it. And it's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. But from a marketing perspective, I think it helped. But I think what also helped was I got burnt out of in-person networking. I realized, you know, I'm not an in-person networker. It's not something that meshes with my personality. And like, I cannot show up at an 8 a.m. like breakfast and get up and be like super jazzed <clears throat> about accounting. Right. Eight in the, you know what I mean? We are all sitting right. around like this breakfast table and they're like, let's go around and say what we do. And I have to like get up. It's like 8.05 in the morning. Right. And they're like, tell us what you do. And I'm like, I'm Michael Eckstein. I do taxes and accounting. <laughs> like I can't make that sound sexy at like 8.05. You know what I mean? <laughs> Right. It's hard enough at like Friday to happy hour at like four, but like Monday at eight, right. it's like you're tough. It's tough. Even at like, like you're saying, even at the after work ones, they're like, so what do you do? And you're like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, I know that's why I'm here, but I don't want to talk about it. Um, so I think it was both of those came together at the same time. And I was like, you know what? We're going to try the internet. I like it. I like it. Well, I mean, and something that I've kind of grappled with is that, you know, I'm a very, you know, quote unquote serious person, meaning like I have, you know, I'm a fiduciary licensed advisor. I hold a series mm. 66, series seven. Like I understand the mechanics of investing and financial planning. And, you know, I've worked with clients and obviously I represent our firm. The problem or not a problem, but I think a dilemma that's going to continue to develop is that my voice on LinkedIn or, or Instagram or whatever, TikTok, even like, it could look very this similar to somebody who is just, you know, just someone pontificating ideas and maybe has no substance or no training. Like, I think mm-hmm. our industry has always been because, you know, we're, we're most of us are governed by FINRA and the SEC and mm-hmm. stuff about what we can put out and regulations and stuff. But it's like, but for years now, we've had, you know, gurus on social media talking about business and investing and stuff. Yeah. And crypto, you know, God forbid, bringing in crypto into the mix. Like, so now I think it's just a, um, I think it's challenging. It's going to be challenging, I think, for the consumer to differentiate between who is someone who is just good at kind of breaking down barriers and talking about it, but is also mm-hmm. a trained, licensed professional to actually give advice versus someone who maybe is just on there rambling. Like, how do you, how have you balanced mm-hmm. that to not become like a caricature of yourself, if you will? Like, does that ever cross your mind? Like, hey, wait a second. Like, I'm, you know, a real person that actually runs this business. I'm not just like an internet talking head. Like, does that ever mm-hmm. enter into your like thought process at all? Um, yes and no. So like, I guess first off, like it is very tough to read someone's content and tell if they're like smart and educated and experienced. Because like, for example, I feel like my experience comes through in my content, but you could definitely fake it till you make it and Mm -hmm. sound good enough and if your clients aren't in your industry it's very hard for them to tell like i could talk to another accountant like within five minutes say if they're good or not just based on the way they're talking about like depreciation right right? but like if i wanted to talk to someone in a totally different industry that i have no experience in whatsoever i would not be able to suss it out like that is a little bit of a problem how we've it's very tough to suss out just by watching content, whether or not someone is good. And I guess that was always a problem. Cause like, I didn't know if they were like a good financial advisor while we're eating like eggs at this networking mm-hmm. event. You know what I mean? Right. So that's always been tough. Right. Um, which is why I think like, I guess referrals will always be very powerful because you know, someone else has done the work has worked with them and is happy with them. But as far as, feeling like a talking head and losing my personality personally no i don't feel like i've become a caricature but it is something i've thought about right Mm -hmm. um but i feel like i haven't because i don't like use a specific framework to write my content right so for i guess the people that don't realize to tell you a little bit more about me i mainly post on linkedin and i write a newsletter for the weekends right On LinkedIn, there's all these kinds of frameworks and styles of writing. And when you use those and you kind of have to take your personality and your knowledge and push it through a framework to create this like perfect stylized post, I can definitely see how you like lose yourself in that and you do become a caricature. For me, all of my posts are at some point, I don't write them in the morning. I'm just, I had a random thought at some point a client situation came up 
and I just jotted it down and it's just a thought out of my head. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like I've lost myself in my mm -hmm. content. Right. Um, and recently I've been trying to, I mean, I've added a note at the top of the file. I add um, all my thoughts to, and it just says, would I be happy with this if it flopped? Mm. Right. And for me, that's the standard. As long as I would be happy with it, even if it got like two likes and everyone hated it, I can live with it. Right. And I think that's what keeps the me in the content. I, and also great points, great points. And it comes across because, I mean, that's why we're talking because I've, I've seen it and I've resonated with it and I, I would agree with your approach. But I think also small businesses, I know you you work with you know, even small businesses, mm -hmm. maybe even on this, like when I, it's almost like who's your end audience? Because I see some advisors and if their end audience is other advisors, that's fine. Be a thought leader in the industry. Like the Michael yep. Keats for the, our financial planning, he's created a, a juggernaut of a company talking about the planning industry in and of itself. But I think, mm -hmm. I think small businesses like to get the ROI out of content, you got to remember, you're not trying to like pontificate who, like what, you know, in the industry, just so I can impress another advisor. I'm trying to talk to like Sam, who's a small business owner, who is like worried about what he needs to do for retirement planning and how he can yep. kind of keep it either integrated or not integrated with his business and whatnot. So I think it's just, it, it's a balance. I mean, and I think our industry, mm -hmm. Overall, I think it's a net positive that more faces are on the internet talking about it mm -hmm. because the alternative is just leaving it up to the internet gurus to talk about it. And ideally, yeah. that, that's not good because, you know, you could be a rug pull situation or who knows what type of advice mm -hmm. it is. So overall, I think it's a net positive that more and more of our industry is using the platforms of modern times to talk about it. Um, but help me, I guess, from your perspective, um, when people do see, or even just people that are on social media and that they're, maybe they're running a small business and you work mm -hmm. with a lot of small businesses, mm -hmm. how do they know who the right financial, I guess, person to hire? Like who's their first, like, should they build their own kind of quote unquote board, like executive board, like mm -hmm. a, a CPA, a planner, someone like yourself, like how do you mostly, when you're talking with clients, how do you help them mm -hmm. understand what, it, what it, like, what do they exactly need? Um, mm -hmm. Have you developed any sort of like kind of process for that or any type of mm -hmm. way to help them understand it or explain, explain that? Okay. So I'll get really like granular and nuanced for Please. a second on this and kind of go off on like, what financial team you need at what stage of the business. Okay. So Perfect. when you start out and you're a freelancer or a solo, and that's in whatever industry, whether it's service or, you know, like uh, something more blue collar, like a tradesman, when you're at that level, I think at a minimum, you should have a tax guy, right? That could be a CPA. That could be an EA. That could be, I guess, even a tax girl. It doesn't really matter, right? You need to have someone that can handle tax because, a lot of freelancers kind of fall into this trap, right? Where for years they were a W-2 employee and a W-2 tax return can definitely be done yourself through TurboTax. It does a lot of the heavy lifting, right? Especially with a very simple situation. So when they get into business, they're just like, I can keep DIYing it. But one of the problems with taxes is when it gets complicated, it gets very complicated. It doesn't like get a little bit more. It's just you kind of fall off this complicated cliff, right? So there is a lot of value in the little bits comparatively that you'll be paying an accountant to take care of it for you, right? And then as you start growing, you definitely want to first bring in people for compliance, right? So the tax accountant, as you start hiring employees, you either want the tax accountant to double check your payroll setup or you want to have a payroll company, right? Once you have a few employees, it might also make sense to hire a bookkeeper. A lot of people love saving a few bucks. And you see this a lot with bootstrapped entrepreneurs by doing their own bookkeeping. It doesn't really, and I know this is a little like biased because I'm an accountant that does mm -hmm. bookkeeping, but it outsourcing your books makes sense even at like very low income levels, right? You don't have to be making like $5 million a year to hire someone, right? Because a lot of people will compare the cost of QuickBooks online, which is like 30 bucks a month versus hiring someone. And they're like, I'm gonna charge you 500 bucks per month. And, you know, 30 bucks a month is definitely cheaper. So people try and keep it, you know, in-house, they try and do it themselves. Mm -hmm. But once you start counting in the other costs that aren't as tangible that you can't, that you can't like touch. So like the cost of your time, the cost of your stress, 
the cost of your mistakes, because mistakes in your bookkeeping, you know, might result in you paying more taxes because an expense slipped through the cracks, right? Mm -hmm. If you make a few big mistakes, it would have been cheaper to hire someone to take care of it, right? Um, so definitely outsource a tax guy, find a bookkeeper, right? And like you're saying with the rest of the financial board, it does make sense to have a financial advisor for small businesses, right? Because even as a freelancer, you can still be putting money away and you still really should be putting money away. That's one of these weird things that when you have a W-2 job, you have a 401k there, right? And when you get there, it's kind of, you've been opted in and you're putting in at least a little bit. When you're a business owner, that's your job now. And sometimes outsourcing that to a finance person is great. And if you have employees and you want to open a retirement account for the business, you absolutely need a financial advisor, right? right? I will definitely all day hear an argument for why you should do your own books. I'll hear you out on that. Sometimes that makes sense. You're small and you only have 10 transactions, whatever. If you have an employee that is not you and you want a business retirement account, you need a financial advisor and a TPA and a whole whatever. Your financial advisor can take care of all the nuance. You need them to make sure you're in compliance because if it goes wrong, it really goes wrong. Right. right. But, um, that's what you need for like a finance team, right? And as you start growing, it might make sense to bring in higher level finance people. So like you might want a part-time controller to really oversee the accounting things, right? And then eventually you might want someone like a part-time CFO, right? And a true part-time CFO will do a lot of financial modeling, risk management, stuff like that. Um, but as far as like a board of advisors, right? Um, I like the idea of like... Um, an unofficial board of advisors, if you know what I mean, right. where you just have a few people that you kind of bounce ideas off of. And that can be, you know, people that are in your industry that could even be people in other industries. Right. And I don't mean like it's an official mentor mentee relationship. It could literally be a friend in the same industry. Like I have a few accounting friends and I'm like, what do you think if I tried this? Right doing this new service. And they'll say, we tried that, did not work. Right. Don't, don't even waste your time with it. Or they'll say, that's a good idea. Have you thought about adding this? You know, some people look at their colleagues as competition because you're all going after the same clients. But realistically, there's plenty of work out there for all of us. I don't even like have to know what industry you're in. I know there's plenty of work out there, right? right? So they're not really competition. Some of the best ideas I've learned for my own business came from colleagues via networking events or that I met through LinkedIn, right? Some of the best like real money-making ideas that like increased my revenue weren't for a guru or whatever. It was literally like from a guy I was talking to at a breakfast networking event where he just goes, oh, you charge that much? My firm charges more. You should increase your prices. Like it's just like little things like that. Right. So like the you know, unofficial board of advisors, you know, yeah, all right. It's not like super fancy. You'll never get them in a boardroom and be like, well, here's our business plan, you guys. But it is nice to have a handful of people that you can bounce new business ideas off of. Yeah. I mean, you're essentially like you're, you're creating your own little, like, you know, like, like we're not talking like a, you're not forming a real like corporation and a board. We're talking mm -hmm. about you just like as an individual Like, you know, I got five to eight people that are quote unquote on my financial team or on my board mm -hmm. that I kind of bounce ideas off. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's something mm -hmm. that, you know, I've spoken about, I guess, with in terms of networking, but I think you can even now with like social media, it's, more possible than ever to kind of develop that Definitely. with folks outside of your immediate realm and then lean into that experience. Um, how, um, what, I mean, what's, what in your, like, what is scale in your mind? Because I think a lot of people think like, I know, I'm, I don't know if you follow like Gary Vaynerchuk and even just, um, yep. I think we kind of spoke about it. Like, you know, entrepreneurship, he's pretty honest and straightforward. The entrepreneur, you know, he's pretty clear about his thoughts on entrepreneurship. I'm sure if you see a snippet, you might think one thing or the other about him, but it's mm -hmm. not for everybody. And mm -hmm. it's extremely difficult, but everybody mm -hmm. kind of wants, it is kind of sexy to be thinking that you can start a business and make millions of dollars and, and whatnot. Yeah. How do you talk to clients when they, when they talk to you about, they want to grow their business mm -hmm. and like, how do you, do you ask them, like, what does that mean? Is that more money? Is that more impact? Is that more this? Like, 
help, help me understand, I guess, how you think about scaling a business. Cause we're, we all get into it. Like I run a, I mean, I work for Centurion Wealth. I'm the director of communications, but I also, you know, I spoke earlier, uh, I run a media company called Mountaineer Media. I'm trying to grow that. Um, I think ever, we all default into the, the, we all just think, okay, the, the goal was more money, more this, more that. Mm. How do you walk through that exercise with people and maybe unlocking a different perspective or whatnot of truly what it means to grow their business? So it sounds squishy and like a little philosophical, I guess, but I think you really have to start with what do you want out of like even your personal life? Because when you start your business, when you become a freelancer, there's always like an initial reason. And like, sometimes it is because you want to be a millionaire. Sometimes it's because you want more freedom. Sometimes it's because your boss sucked and you're just like, ah, fuck that guy. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe bleep that bit out. I don't know. <laughs> Leave it in. Um, but there was a reason originally for why you started and you had this like original dream of the business you wanted, right? And it's important to, I guess, keep that in mind, right? Because if your dream business is, I can always put my kids on the bus and I can always be home for their soccer games, right? Scale may not necessarily help that, right? More revenue may not necessarily help that. It could help that. You could scale and get to a point where you have middle management and you have like 50 employees and everything's taken care of for you. But it's like that can take years, right? And it's a lot of hard work and that will be a lot of missed, you know, dance recitals or whatever. Mm -hmm. So first, be clear and honest about what you really want. And then you kind of build out from there, right? Do I need to scale to like, you just have to start asking questions like, do I need to scale to hit this dream? is what I want to scale and, you know, maybe exit my business, sell it to maybe another agency, maybe private equity is in your industry, buying things up. Right. Or do I just want to keep things small and tight? And I just want to be me, maybe one or two employees and just be like super high price boutique. Right. Because everyone thinks that scaling is the way to make more money, but you can also be a niche consultant, right? Like, I've seen plenty of consultants where they're like, my minimum retainer is 10 grand, right? And yeah, it takes a while to build up to that. But depending on what your goal is and what your, I guess, aspirations for your business and for your personal life is, you know, there are different routes to take. You don't have to scale, right? Mm -hmm. Although sometimes it's the right choice also, not trying to talk poorly against scaling a business. Well, I, I think more, it's, it's a good nuance that I think what you're picking up on is that you know, even in the advice business, it's like scale might not mean, a, you know, triple the amount of clients, it might mean losing your bottom 10% of your clients and adding, you know, some high, higher quality clients. And then you that's a different way of scaled, maybe it's more assets or whatever, or doubling your prices, right? Double mm -hmm. your prices, I think I've seen online, but then lose, it's like a, like a little quote, like double your prices and yeah. then lose half your business. Because then it's like, well, then I'm making the same amount of money with, with, with half yeah. the work. I think some people just, I think, immediately get into a path of like more, 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 more. And it's mm -hmm. just like, wait a second, like, what is exactly? And there's also nothing wrong with running a little boutique business that makes 15, yeah. 20, 30,000 dollars a year. And then maybe it's just like one of like four or five things maybe that you're up to. There's nothing wrong mm -hmm. with that. I think we're yeah. just like obsessed with this concept of like, I think mm -hmm. truly money. I mean, I think money in social media and glam, I think does motivate us, unfortunately, to a large degree. Um, and people made to feel that they have to get to that point when maybe in reality, it doesn't have to be I think more and more people are honestly getting into entrepreneurship than ever, mm -hmm. because it's probably, it's never been easier truly to quickly get something set up to start Definitely. running to, to start, which is a good thing. I think, I mean, um, mm -hmm. what else is on your mind when, when you're working with clients? I mean, do they get like a stream of all this? Like how, how have you approached like your process? Like, um, or what do you think, what resonates, I guess, most with people, uh, when you're working with them, um, because you, you are from your content, I would say philosophical, insightful, is, is this the kind of, is this the version they get of you or, or how have you kind of balanced, like sharing the advice, giving your opinion and then helping them ultimately get results, which is what they pay you for. There is a mix of this and much more, I guess, specific advice because it's tough on podcasts to give like mega sure. specific advice, right? Sure. Or even like on LinkedIn, because I don't know everyone's little situation, but there is a little bit of philosophy in it because I, I mean, I believe that you do need to have that strategy to give good financial advice. And one situation, if you take one situation and just like look at the numbers and look at it very cold, 
depending on what the end goal is, that could either, they could be doing great or they could be doing poorly, right? So like say someone's making $200,000 of profit, right? And they have like an employee or whatever. Well, if that's all they want, they're killing it, right? But if they want to scale, they're not really there. So my clients do get a lot of that, I guess, philosophy in there, but not so much from a squishy sense, but as a, we need this, so we can figure out what the right answers to your questions are, mm-hmm. right? Because depending on your philosophical squishy answers, I'm going to be giving you different tough answers, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know what I mean? But you know, my answer to everyone always seems to ask, should I hire employees? I guess on the topic of scaling. That's one of the most common questions I have. When is the right time to hire employees? Should I hire employees? So that will come down to the squishiness. So we always have that talk of, you know, what do you want? Where is your business going? And then we start getting into the math. So is there an efficiency gain somewhere? Can we make this happen other ways? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I went off on a tangent there and forgot the original question. No, you're you're perfectly fine. We're, we're off on like eight different tangents. I want to, I want to write a theory by you because I I think I brought this up on another episode, but I, I read somewhere this, you know, let's go back pre-industrial revolution, if you will, with me. Turn you back to a time where individuals basically had to represent themselves and they had to basically have a trade. Like, were you a farmer? Were you a shoemaker? Could you do this? And then you kind of did whatever your talent was and you kind of traded that for money. And maybe you even bartered it with other goods, not even money. But you basically, you could do something and you exchange that for a value from society and whether it was money or not. And then you lived your life and you built a life on that. Industrial Revolution, we kind of, you know, what's what's this pick up 1800s, if you will, early 1900s, we all get into this, the world, if you will, mega corporations start forming in factories, processing line, right, Henry Ford, the car, we all kind of left doing our own thing and kind of said, okay, I'm going to unite under this big mission by this company that says they're going to pay me this to do that. Um, and that's what it is. And then that kind of has dominated really the last 200 years of most people's concept of work and money. I think oddly we're in this Renaissance period. Let's stay, let's pick it up maybe 10, 20 years ago mm-hmm. with, with the internet now is that we're, we're kind of reverting back to pre 1800 almost mindset of, wait a second, I can almost be myself and maybe I have a few different things that I do to earn income and which is being an entrepreneur in in Mm -hmm. today's sense but it's like a reversion back to like just kind of like doing what you you're good at or what you're passionate about or what you happen to have a skill at and selling it labeled over like the power of the internet and the power of the the world now I can sell to somebody in Texas they can buy whatever I sell Mm -hmm. if it's a little trinket online or something Mm -hmm. so like is do you see like I foresee a future where less and less people have one thing they do and I'm this and I work at this company and I make this amount of money. I think if this keeps playing out 10, 15, 20 years, again, that's why I said, bear with me. It's a little hypothetical. (laughs) I think that we all, and this, because I think it severely impacts retirement planning is that Mm -hmm. I think we all gradually, I think even a stereotypical 60 year old couple, they might have three or four things that like pay them 10, 15, 20, $30,000 a year each. And it's like, they're mm-hmm. almost like their own mini Warren Buffett of like a holding company. Like, <laughs> I think that's extremely like likely and practical, even for the average person that doesn't consider themselves a mogul and entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I just think the way this keeps playing out, this idea of I'm only one thing for 30 years and I get paid this salary and that's mm-hmm. it. I think that's slowly, slowly slipping away. And I just think about, wow, how can I anticipate that in terms of servicing it as a financial planner and a retirement and the way we interact with mm-hmm. work and money? Um, does that, do you all, is there any thoughts on that? Do you agree with that? Do you, th- do you think that is, that's kind of what we're headed towards? I mean, any, I guess, insight on that, if you will. So a few things there, I think we'll definitely see a lot more of that, like side hustle culture, whatever you want to call it is here to stay because that is what some people enjoy. Some people enjoy having that little bit of entrepreneurial thing. Some people enjoy having the multiple small businesses, but I don't think we'll ever see the salary jobs fully go away because just like people like being entrepreneurial, they like the stability. They like the having the legit job, the benefits, being an employee. Some people, that's how they want to live their life. And 
more power to him. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I see what you're saying about going back to kind of working for yourself, medieval kind of thing. But I think we're also going through another type of revolution right now, not revolution, evolution, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just the, like in the industrial. The <laughs> yeah. The industrial illusion. Um, <laughs> there was more, a lot of efficiency gains. And I sure. think we're seeing that again recently as we were talking about earlier with this transition from in-person to virtual as we are forced to all make this transition there have been a lot of efficiency gains like now because i don't have to do this meeting in person i save the time before and after Mm -hmm. or now there's technology that i can use that i didn't have 10 years ago and that's especially apparent in you know white collar industries like financial planning accounting uh, lawyers. When my dad started as an accountant, it was an incredibly manual, paper-intensive uh, profession. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of efficiency gains, especially in the last few years. And I think we'll see a lot of that too, right? And the last thing on side hustles and stuff like that, I think there's a lot of opportunity in it for traditional retirement planning, right? So Everyone thinks of entrepreneurship as this. This is how I'll make, become a gajillionaire. I'll open, I'll scale, I'll exit, right? But there's a lot of opportunity to open, side hustle, and then have a retirement account through that business, mm-hmm. right? Because we're all so used to having the 401k at work. And the only other option being a, like a frankly kind of crappy IRA with like a $6,000 limit. But there is an opportunity for people to have their own little businesses and have their own business retirement plans with higher limits. And instead of having to scale and exit to become the gajillionaire and have enough money for retirement, they can have their side hustles, have the business retirement plan, and kind of save and be entrepreneurial, right? Yeah. It's a much less intense type of entrepreneurship than scaling and exiting, but I do think we'll see a lot more of that. I almost think it's going to be, and the reason why I think it it plays out, I think simply because as an advisor, I feel like I'm as a financial advisor who, you know, studies, you know, wealth accumulation and then burn rates of portfolios and what you need to live on that and matching that against inflation. Like mm. America is drastically undersaved for retirement. Like if we oh, definitely if if I'm used to making say a hundred thousand a year, I need easily two or three, maybe a million, two million dollars of assets to then produce that every year. And what if I live from 60 to 90? That's 30 years of income that I need to replace Mm -hmm. theoretically without working. So I need to survive on a portfolio to live that lifestyle of a hundred thousand. If I'm an executive and I've lived that life for 20 years, that's the life I want to keep living. Mm -hmm. We're nowhere near that. The average American Mm -hmm. is nowhere near that amount of money. So I almost see it coming out as a necessity because I, I, I don't know. I, I think the a generation of like 30, 40, 50 year olds are like still under saved. And I think it's almost gonna be like, would you rather have a couple things that are cash flowing things to you? Not necessarily ROI on a giant, you know, portfolio that you log into fidelity and see, you know, a million dollars sitting there, but do you have three things that can pay you cash flow? that might be a little bit more tangible to at least get your hands in and create and build and do. And I think that kind of, that model is not necessarily baked in a retirement plan. We, right now we kind of just think mm-hmm. of it as like save money into this pot, grow mm-hmm. this pot, mitigate the risk of this pot. And then eventually when you're old, draw down from this pot, like, and that's the formula and it works and it's you know, arguably pretty hands off for most people. They hire an advisor mm-hmm. and it is what it is. The problem is that not everybody has those assets and we, not mm-hmm. nearly enough assets. So I almost see that, that evolution becoming a necessity that, okay, I don't have $1.2 million, whether it's because of student loans I had to pay off, whether it's because of just how it's, it cost me $1,900 to rent a studio apartment. I literally cannot save it. People are like, save money. Mm-hmm. People are like, I can't save money. Like, I don't have any money, even if you make mm-hmm. 70 grand and you live in mm-hmm. Seattle or something. So I, that's, I, if that makes sense, I just want to add that context. Yeah. I'm almost just seeing it evolving because it's like, well, shit, like the, the quote unquote retirement picture i think is going to change and morph over time for quote unquote our generation Mm -hmm. um whether it's because of our approach to life and experience-based life or this and that and the other and just the mechanics of financially being able to pull that off Mm -hmm. uh, for themselves yeah no i agree with that i think there will be a kind of 
new kind of blend of retirement savings. Before it was literally just you had a massive next egg that you were you built up during great interest rate years, mm-hmm. right? And you drew down on it. Or you had a pension. And at, or you had a pension huh? for like or you had like a yeah. pension or social security, which you pensions are dying like the dinosaurs and social security. Yeah. I'm not counting on it, right? As a 28 year old, I don't, I can't reliably think that the government's going to pay me that. So I can't even factor that in, in my own personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do think there will be a little bit of small entrepreneurial side hustles that kind of we keep through retirement that hopefully we keep because we enjoy the work and not because we're mm-hmm. forced to do the work. Right. Right. Um, so we'll kind of, cause like we all need something to keep busy. Like my dad is nearing retirement age and like now he's got to figure out what to do. Right? right. He's been an accountant forever. He's been doing math forever. So now for him, retirement is going to kind of look like just dialing back and doing instead of the 40 hours a week, 15, 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So I do think we will see a lot more of that instead of just like super legit retirement where we don't work at all because in a way, after working for 40 years, not working is kind of boring, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, we see people that are like, well, now what do I do? Like they were something, mm-hmm. you know, they're 60 and they're, if they're in good health, it's kind of, and there's pretty hard statistics too. It's not good to not do anything. Like it's mm-hmm. not, it's not good to really, I mean, if you're at the point where you're in a nursing home, it's really not good because you don't have the stimulation or goals mm-hmm. or, or challenges or things like that. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of, okay, like, don't think of it as now I'm done. Now just sit here and wait for the end. Like, I don't Mm. want people to think that. Like, I think retirement should be more of a fluid thing and more of a, like, what do you do with your time on earth type thing? Not like, what do you do when work stops? And now you're just this, like, you're out of school kind of feeling. And I think that's kind of just how it's been positioned and thought of for a while. But I think maybe that changes over time. Yeah. And I guess on the point of fluidity, I think the internet and where we're at now and this new revolution or whatever mm-hmm. gives us a lot of fluidity, fluidity in how we work. Now we're not forced to have the salary job, like you were saying, because that was the only way to make money. Mm-hmm. Right. And not forced to have the old school type of retirement where you had to save, 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 pension, retire, because like it wasn't an option to kind of have the casual part-time side gig and have the retirement or whatever. Right. So this revolution has given us a lot of fluidity. And I think we'll see a lot of interesting things as we kind of shift from that kind of hard and fast model, the kind of born school work retirement. This is how you have to do it because we don't have the internet and we don't have the flexibility in our lives yet mm-hmm. to a more nuanced thing going forward which will be interesting for all of our industries, right? Because I feel like all of our industries are kind of built on, this is how it used to be done. So this is how we keep doing it. But as the Mm -hmm. rest of society and our lives kind of change, we'll have to change around with it, you know? No, I agree. And I mean, hopefully it's job security for folks like you and I, if we continue to kind of help guide people through it. I want to hit on two questions, maybe more Mm -hmm. specific to tax in recent Mm -hmm. uh, developments in the news. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's start with, taxing unrealized capital gains. I think mm-hmm. that sentence alone, maybe some people are just like, oh, I don't even know what that even means. Basically, it's a concept of, it's most, I guess, apparent in our face with people like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. They have massive concentrations of wealth in mm-hmm. a stock. They have not paid tax on it because they have not mm-hmm. sold that stock. Mm-hmm. And it's been floated around that, okay, maybe to tax these people. And then of course they take a loan on it. They live the, you know, they live on the loan, um, yeah. that sort of thing. But it, and then, so let me just start there, I guess. Is that a good thing, bad thing, disaster, dumpster fire? The fact that like it's floating around in the lexicon of like wanting to tax something from your perspective as an accountant, an mm-hmm. unrealized gain, like amongst industry professionals like what are some of the conversations that you guys are maybe thinking about questions or does that Mm -hmm. seem like that's never that was just maybe a campaign like so fire up thing the very pragmatic answer is realistically i don't think it'll happen right and the reason for that is and this is like a back thing on taxes for everyone the irs doesn't create taxes in a vacuum they don't create tax law All tax law is created by Congress and goes into the Internal Revenue Code, which the IRS then interprets. Mm -hmm. 
And similar things happen on state levels. Each state creates their state Congress, creates tax law, and then whatever state agency interprets it and creates the publications and stuff and the tax forms. So pragmatically, Congress will have to pass this kind of tax on unrealized gains. Uh, Congress hasn't been able to do anything for like the last 10 years. So realistically, I don't think it's passing. And if they don't pass it, the IRS can't do it. So uh, for everyone that talks about and is worried, I'm very much in the I'll believe it when I see it camp. Once it passes both houses and it's ready to get signed, then I'll believe it. But before that, I think it's a lot of worry about a situation that may not actually happen, right? And it's not like there's a 50-50 chance of happening and we should prep for it. It's just been a gridlock, no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on. I think we can all agree that Congress has been a just kind of gridlock shit show for like right. a while. Ever. And pragmatically, they ain't passing anything, <laughs> right. let alone to change the taxes, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Now, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I guess it depends how you feel about taxes and government spending and things like that. At the end of the day, you know, I don't feel one way or the other on taxes, which is weird. You think I'd have like really strong opinions on taxes as an accountant and be like, oh, no one should pay taxes or everyone should pay taxes or whatever. Realistically, taxes are a necessary evil in life you know someone's got to pay to redo the roads we'll never fully get rid of them and we'll never have you know mega high tax rates like 90 percent, right so it'll always be here right i don't feel about it one way or the other it's kind of you know death and taxes we got to have it well i think people just quickly like to note like i think some people struggle with that concept is that it's okay. I mean, if you're working with an accounting, in theory, you're not avoiding taxes. That's illegal, right? That's like the draw the line. If I'm actively, proactively trying to hide income and avoid taxes, you go to jail for that. But no one sits out and says, you know what, who can I give the most money? Is it the state of Virginia today or the federal government? Like no one wants to pay the most taxes. So it's kind of this, like, it's not, um, what's the word? Um, not hyperbole, but I mean, it's like the way you structure sentence, like you are actively trying to not pay as much as you can, but then still follow the law. So, I mean, like, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I think most accounts would agree with that. I mean, the, a lot yeah. of the tax code is built around saving you money, even though mm-hmm. some of it is enforcing it. It gives different incentives to save money and not pay taxes to incentivize you to whatever it is, build businesses, because that creates jobs, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, I, I think mean, that there- maybe some people just get frustrated when it's so grotesque with billionaires that it feels maybe like that's too like where's the line at like i can do that with my taxes i don't want to pay mm-hmm. as much but if someone does that that has billions it feels like well at that level maybe it should be different or something and that's that's tough that's a tough line like where do you draw it type of deal yeah i think with taxes at the end of the day no matter what the tax situation is whatever the tax law is everyone's going to be a little bit unhappy with their taxes and like, that's okay. That's all something we're going to have to come to terms with. I'm unhappy with my taxes too, right? It's life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had another point in there and totally lost it. No, you're fine. No, my, my last question, I'll let you go. I know you're a busy guy is like a lot of, in our industry, a lot of the conversation is around, like a lot of folks have a lot of assets built up in pre-tax buckets, like a 401k. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the theory is that hmm, if I'm looking at the tax environment right now, where do I mm-hmm. think it'll be in 10, 20, 30 years? I would speculate that it'll be higher than it is today. We're mm-hmm. in a relatively low tax environment, historically speaking, to make up for all the government expenditures, we can anticipate maybe the government having to increase taxes, at least some. Mm -hmm. So the problem is a lot of folks have assets built up in pre-tax buckets and they have not yet paid tax on it. They can convert these. There's different methods to do it. Obviously, this is not specific advice. FINRA, SEC, listening. Um, (laughs) You can Also, on that note, even if it was specific advice, you totally want to talk to a financial advisor and accountant before you do a Roth conversion. Absolutely. This is, we're going on the side Roth conversions can create taxable events. And sometimes that's okie dokie. Sometimes that's what you want and everything lines up right. 
But if you do it by yourself, you can create a taxable event in a bad year for it mm-hmm. and like screw up other things. So 100%. definitely talk to people, plan it. It can be good. It can be bad. It's a tool like all other things, but like walk into it with both eyes open. Right. I, I guess my point was just that, like, like, I mean, I know it's, you can't predict things, but like, I mean, people like, do you think Roth IRAs keep their tax-free status forever? I mean, is that something that people statute, I mean, can they even like re, I mean, you can't go back on something and make it now taxable. You see what I'm saying? Like, is, or is that a worry of, of anybody in the tax industry that like Roth assets could one day subject to be changed and all of a sudden they are taxable? I mean, if that makes sense. I, I, I see what you're saying. And my answer is, I don't know if other people are talking about it. I don't know if it's possible or not, because at the end of the day, like you're right. Like Roth IRAs and other IRAs, all these retirement accounts aren't like constructs of nature. Yeah. It's like a tree will always be a tree. You know what I mean? You can't change how trees work. Right. right. But Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs and all these retirement accounts are created by the tax code. And in theory, you may be able to change them, right? So maybe one day they will change how Roth IRAs work, or maybe one day they will change how retirement accounts work altogether. Um, It's tough to say, you know, it's very much just like you can't predict um, market returns. You really can't predict taxes. And it's Mm -hmm. a kind of hope for the best, prepare for the worst situation. Um, Have a plan and be ready to pivot if the plan hits the fan. That's a good rhyme that I should write down. Um, (laughs) At the LinkedIn post, I need to see that from you. (laughs) Right. Um, It is tough and it is scary. And like, I feel the same anxieties and scary thing too. Cause like I have money in Roth IRAs. I have money in the market. Um, there is no good answer. And that's something that I'm sure the people listening right now in the car don't want to hear. But with a lot of complex questions, whether they're taxes, investments, retirement, or even in business, sometimes there is no good answer. There's no right answer. There's close enough, right? And keeping an eye on it. And if something goes wrong, pivoting. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's also where financial advisors come into it and accountants come into it. Make it someone else's problem to keep an eye on it. You know, maybe you don't want to keep an like no one wants to keep an eye on taxes themselves. That's why you hire an accountant. Make it that idiot's problem. It shouldn't be your problem anymore. Right. (laughs) Find someone good. Make them worry for you. Absolutely. Well, look, I mean, that's maybe a great place to end it because, yeah, look, work with professional. I'll advocate, obviously, for the financial services industry. I think it's a good thing to work with a trained professional as is working with a trained tax professional. Um, Look, man, thank you so much for for jumping on. I think this has been fun. Um, We hit on a ton of different subjects, but the end of the day you do a lot for financial literacy for a lot of people and mm-hmm. you probably I mean, i'm sure you see it with the inter- direct interaction but i yeah. think it's it's you know it's a lot of folks are watching listening and i think you uh do, do phenomenal work and i commend you for thank it you. and appreciate thank you coming you. on man yeah no problems thanks for having me